Mark 14 says this, and you can follow along. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. You know, one of the things that they try to teach you in seminary is how to preach the tone of the text, right? Um, If you're wondering if I received a failing grade in this, I can either confirm nor deny this. Um, But by God's grace, my my aim as we go through uh, Mark 14 is to preach the proper tone of it because it really takes a dark turn here into what we call the passion, or another word for passion is suffering of Christ. And that's the direction that we're going to be heading down um, right now as we, as we dive into Mark 14. And today we're going to unpack, really, some peculiar reactions from Jesus and his disciples that reveal what they valued most. That's a little bit about what we're going to talk about this morning, is value. And what we'll... Uh, what we'll look at by way of application is that our, our priorities uh, actually reveal our values. And, and it's funny how we all have different and contrasting values, right? All of us value certain things over other things. And two questions that, th- that this text is going to surface for us are these two questions. Number one, what does God most value? And then number two, do our values line up with what God most values? Because here's the thing, we can say that we value certain things. We can say it as the church, nobody's going to argue if I lay out some values, if I lay out some Christian values for you, you're all just going to raise your hand and go, yeah, I'm all about that, I'm in, count me into that. But the real test comes in whether we actually live out those values, right? And what we know and what we're going to see from Mark 14, 1 through 11 is that God values our works when they come flowing from a self-denying worship for Jesus. So those are the kind of values that God has that we need to line up and be realigned under. Now, I remember, and I, I, I remember when we planted the church, again, it's been four years. Man, when you plant a church, it's all hands on deck. You know, we had about 25, 30 people. And uh, everybody's just kind of reaching into all these different things, and you're serving 
in all of these areas. And one of, the, one of the phrases we came up with, which was really helpful as a way to realign us with what we knew was most important, and you'll see it on the back of you know, our substance t-shirts, is for the gospel. And that kind of became a line for us that kind of described why we do everything and the value that, that, we, that we held. Um, now, for those of you who've been around long enough, you know that we used to share the warehouse with, with an auction, right? And I remember that, uh, and, and by the way, Melissa gave me permission to share this story of something that's not going to cast her in a fantastic light right now, all right? But, um, but she gave me permission, don't worry, I'm not in the doghouse, a lot of romance going on here still, Every, everything's good, right? Everything's still square. Um, but she, she, told, she reminded me of this, of this moment some years back where she, she remembered herself, um, you know, the day after the big auction, and, you know, we had to kind of come in and clean up a little bit, and here she is, you know, um, in our church plant with, like, these rubber gloves up to her elbows, like, scrubbing the toilets, and, you know, just coming out feeling frustrated because then she had to go do this, then she had to go do that, you know, not, not feeling a, a lot for the gospel, Right in that moment, not feeling a high priority or a, a high value for, for worship, right? We find ourselves um, talking about these things that we value when it comes to God and his word in theory sometimes. And then when the rubber meets the road and we actually have to live it out, sometimes there's something different going on. And we make a mistake when we talk about serving the church specifically as if it's somehow disconnected, Right? from valuing and worshiping Jesus. And the reason why we need to make sure our alignment is not off in this area is because we can serve the church without serving Christ. We can do that, we can engage in that, and when this happens, what happens is ministry becomes a default and faulty mechanism for our own justification. With the mindset that says, I'm okay with God because I serve him, rather than I'm okay with God because he served me by sending Jesus to the cross. And now I have the opportunity to serve him from the affection and gratefulness of a heart that is deeply assured now by this unending fountain of God's grace that will be showered on me in an unending sense for the rest of my life. So this text, what it does is it illustrates what happens when a person doesn't live out what God most values. So as we look down at verses one through two, we see, uh, we see this plot between the chief priests and the scribes who are coming out against Jesus. It's two days before the Passover, it says, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and an organized plot to kill Jesus is finally beginning to take shape with these religious leaders that have been just trying to figure out a way to cut Jesus out of the picture. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Passover is, the Passover is a Jewish feast from the book of Exodus that began in the book of Exodus, an Old Testament book, recalling the time when God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. So what happened was Jewish families were commanded to kill a lamb and mark their doorposts with the blood because God was sending an angel to take the lives of every firstborn son from any family whose doorpost wasn't covered by the blood of the slaughtered lamb. Now, if that just sounds like a bloody, not so you know, subtle precursor to the crucifixion of Christ, it's because it is. And there's something very, very interesting that that symbolizes for us as we see Christ's death coming right at this time of Passover. So picture the scene here as we come to verse three. 
with Jesus inching ever closer to the cross. He's so close now. This plan of redemption that God laid out in Genesis 3, we're so close now. His opponents now, they're meeting together in secret rooms. They're plotting, they're angling, they're devising ways to arrest and kill him. Of course, none of this surprises Jesus because everything about to take place was a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament prophets. It was everything that he was expecting to happen because this was the reason why he came. But then we take this peculiar turn in the text and we find Jesus in in Bethany, of all places, reclining at the table of Simon the leper, who would have been Simon the former leper because lepers were not allowed to mingle or or entertain those who were not infected with, with leprosy. But really what I want us to do is just go through this a little more slowly to pause in our minds because it's easy for us to miss some of the subtleties that we're presented with here in this text. Again, Jesus, days before his death, what is he doing? Well, he's reclining. He reclines and eats with a restored leper. Of all things, of all people, of all the events, of all the preparation, Jesus reclines and eats with a restored leper. And just here, like we do all through the book of Mark, we get this real-time visualization of how the cross would remove the leprosy of our sin, right? And that restoration by Jesus leads to eating with Jesus. I mean, the first thing that usually happens for me when I've had relationships that God has healed in my life is, dude, we get together and eat. Are we good? Yeah, what do you want to do? Let's eat, right? So there's this idea that we all understand that part of the restoration process that we go through with people who we've had tension with, man, we, we sit down at the table, we eat with them. And so we see Jesus having the same kind of interaction with somebody that he cured of what then was an incurable disease. And then just suddenly, in verse 3, as you look down at the text, a woman arrives, it says, who we know when we read this same story in John 12, there's a woman named Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and she anoints Jesus with some just outrageously expensive, what is called nard, which was a, a rare perfume back in that day, which would have been imported from India, and it came in this very elaborate white alabaster jar. So this, this was extravagant. For, for that time. It was probably a family heirloom. You know, you picture, you know, maybe some of you have been given like an aged bottle of wine, you know, that's been like preserved in your family through the years. Maybe it's something you inherited and you're waiting for that time that you're going to open for a special guest, unless you just got that thing and popped it open and you've already drunk it, you know, but most of the time you might want to wait for a special occasion or a special guest to open it with. This was kind of the same thing we see here with Mary and this jar of nard. So Mary breaks the jar open, pours the ointment over the head of Jesus. Now again, if we go to John 12, which we're going to in a few minutes, we're told that she actually used the oil to clean Jesus' feet with her hair, meaning there was enough perfume in this bottle, enough ointment for his whole body to be covered, to be anointed. So again, we have this beautiful moment sandwiched in between all of these events that are leading up to Christ's death. We have this beautiful moment of Mary worshiping 
and adoring Jesus, showing him tenderness, showering him with affection days before he commits the most tender, selfless act of suffering for her and all he would save. But then what happens next is just, again, peculiar in in the reaction that the disciples had because they just, you look down at verse four and these brothers just flip out. The disciples flip out. There's now, there's tension now, right? There's awkwardness in the room. This was an act of worshipful affection. It's not received well. These brothers are not happy. All of this costly perfume spilling down the head of Jesus all the way down to his feet. And what happens to the disciples? Well, it surfaces something in their heart. It surfaces just this fury in them. It surfaces just this self-righteous fury. How could she waste this on Jesus, they ask. I mean, they're not really valuing this particular moment only two days before Jesus' death. They value what they see as money being squandered. Interesting where their mind immediately shifts to. And again, even more interesting that all this happens after they observed the widow in the temple who put everything she had in the offering plate in chapter 12, verse 41. And what did Jesus do in that moment? Well, he called them over to observe what was going on. And then he made the point that she had given more. This woman had given more than all the big givers because her small gift was given from her big heart of generosity. But Jesus gave his disciples this object lesson in what God values that was quickly forgotten, which I think happens to us a lot. God provides these moments in our life where we're given a view of the things that Jesus loves and the things that Jesus values, but we then bounce and we default back into the tendencies of our own heart to grapple after things that we place a bigger priority of and more importance on. But this is where we get kind of tripped up. We get tripped up with this right here because their motives don't like seem that bad, do they? 300 denarii, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I mean, that was the equiv of a year's worth of wages, right? So most people, the average dude made about a denarii, a denarii. Can someone help me out with that right now? Nobody can. Nobody's, everybody's chicken like me to try to get that word wrong. I'm going to roll with denarii, um, but most people made a denarii uh, a, a day. So 300 was a, was a year's salary. It was a lot of dough. I mean, it was a lot of dough. So the reasoning was that the ointment could have, should have been sold and given to the poor. Now, we got to ask the question, right? Was that an unworthy thing? I, mean, I don't think we think it, it was. And in fact, maybe you're reading this going like, dude, I don't, like, I don't see the problem here, Right? Because we can only imagine how much better the story would have been if it would have been the fact that she sold this perfume and she did give the money to the poor, right? Mary sells expensive heirloom perfume and gives all the money to the poor, right? I mean, imagine the tweets from at Mary, right, going out on this one, right? I mean, imagine how many likes on Facebook she would have gotten for this one. Imagine how many downloads if the story had gone viral on YouTube right? I mean, this would have been big. Think of how many people it would have inspired. 
we think about that. And you know, we, we actually love stuff like this. We do. We gobble stuff like this up. Not necessarily wrong either, but we love stuff like this, do we not? You guys probably remember a few weeks ago, Derek Carr, right? He's this dude that signed a $125 million contract with the Raiders. I don't know if you guys saw this interview he did, and they said, Derek, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of cash, brother. Like, what are you going to do with all that cash? And he just says, you know, he says, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give some of it away. I'm going to tithe. You know, I'm involved at my church. And um, that, that's the first thing I know that I'm going to do is I'm going to give a portion of it to the Lord. And it was an inspiring thing. It was, it was a good thing. Um, I called Derek myself and was like, dude, I have a great church for you in Ashland. <laughs> Would the commute be too far? Or... But the disciples here are furious. They're furious. How could she waste this on Jesus of all people? I mean, let's not offend Jesus, right? We're getting all furious that she's pouring this expensive ointment on Jesus. But the thought is, why is she wasting this? And there's few of us who wouldn't think there was something more worthy to do with a year's wages, right? What the disciples saw as waste, Jesus saw as worship. And he approved of her offering. Just like the widows, just like when the widow dropped her penny in the collection plate. In this moment, what we see in this moment was that Mary was living out her obedience of the most important commandment that we learned about a few weeks ago, which was loving God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like the widow, she was giving all she had from the love in her heart for Christ. So Jesus he just shuts them down. Just shuts these brothers down. In verse six, he says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. There's always time, he said, to give to the poor. But worship is priority one. And you know, that's why, that's why we gather, right? That's part of the reason why we gather on what we would call the Lord's Day. Why we gather on Sunday morning to worship. It's why we prioritize this day at the beginning of the week. And this anointing had even deeper significance because of the fact that Jesus was heading to the cross. But the disciples were still blind to this. Their concerns were lying elsewhere. The cross was not prominent in their thoughts. At this point, they don't even really know what's gonna be happening the day after tomorrow. The, the cross was not something that was circulating in their hearts and in their minds, as something that needed to take precedent for every move that Jesus was making leading up to that. What kind of prominence does the cross have in our thoughts? Do we have worshipful hearts that center on thankfulness to God for the work of Christ on the cross? Is that something that is constantly moving and expanding and growing in our heads? And in our hearts, it's a worthy question to ask. And again, once again, we see this strange contrast between Mary and the disciples. Interesting, these brothers are cast in this angry and, and ugly light. Even though what they were proposing was a good and godly thing in and of itself. 
Why is that? Why do we see that here? Well, it's because their hearts were not actually good and godly in this moment. They had placed a higher priority on working for Jesus over worshiping Jesus. So Jesus realigns their priorities. He was in effect saying, brothers, don't be so drawn to outward acts of sacrifice at the expense of inward acts of worship. Because that's the heart of all these men who are plotting to kill me right now. In fact, it was the heart of one of his own disciples, as we will see. Let's go two books forward. Let's turn to John 12. Let's get a, let's get a snapshot, John 12, of what was going on with our boy Judas here a couple nights before the death of Jesus. John 12. John 12, I'm going to just pick up in, in verse 4 because this is telling us this is a different account of the same story in the Gospel of John. And verse 4 says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So what we find out as we read Mark is that it was Judas. Judas was the one who was speaking up about everything that was going on here. Then in verse 6, it says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So what we know about Judas, if you want to go back to, John tw- uh, to, uh, to Mark 14, what we know about Judas when we read John 12 is that although he was one of the 12 disciples, he was also a thief. His motivation was greed over the will of God. He was a man in stark contrast from Mary who was loving Jesus with all that she had. I mean, Judas, this was, this was a dude who was opportunistic, right? He had other things in mind. He had other motivations. He had other priorities, And oddly enough, Judas didn't receive the rebuke of Jesus that he gave to these disciples with repentance. Instead, he sought to betray Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Which we learn as we get to verse 10 in Mark 14, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what I want to do here is I want to chat about our boy Judas, about J.I. here for a minute, okay? Had Judas ever given any money to the poor? Do you think in the three years that he was part of the inner circle, the 12 disciples of Jesus? For sure. He was in charge of the disciples' money bag. He would have been the one to distribute the funds. So if the disciples had a mercy ministry, Judas was the boy who was in charge of it. Judas had done a lot of good ministry over the past three years. Let that settle into you for one second. Judas had done good work, good ministry work. Think about that. Judas served. Nobody didn't think 
that Judas didn't serve well. We're going to learn more about that next week when all the disciples were surprised when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. None of them goes Judas. None of them goes, it's him. None, None of them. They all think it's them. They all think it's themselves. They're so perplexed that anybody would betray him. There was, there was no earmark. There was no characteristic with any of their other brothers here in the 12 that would have led them to think that Judas was the guy, that Jesus, Judas was the Benedict Arnold, right? Judas served, but he hadn't served God from a heart of worship for Jesus. A heart for ministry needs to flow from a heart of worship, from a heart that values and prioritizes Christ above all else. Why? So that all else gets your heart for Christ first. There's an order. And Judas, he didn't have the balance. He didn't have the changed heart. But he did a lot of great ministry. The poor could have raised their hands and told you and me about the times that they benefited from the ministry of Judas Iscariot. But in the end, he never worshiped Christ. So Christ then became his first casualty. And Christ will always be sacrificed on the altar of ministry when our works don't flow from our worship. So what happens then for us, for our purposes? What happens when we value and prioritize works more highly than worship in our life? What happens is this, our life becomes our highest form of worship. That's what's happening right here. That's what happened to Judas. That's what the disciples were warring against. We either worship God or we become the God we worship. Judas's God was Judas. He sacrificed everything for money. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus speaking reminds us, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or he'll love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Judas despised Jesus. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, you cannot love, you cannot serve God and money. So what is this passage telling us then? What are the implications for our lives as we look at this? Well, one of the things is this. We shouldn't waste our worship. Don't waste your worship. Our gatherings here on Sunday, they are a means of grace for us. They're a means of grace that prepare us for scattering. So we gather to prepare to scatter. And so one of the questions that's helpful for us to ask is this, if your coworker or your schoolmate or your spouse or your kid or your friend or your parent, if they could see you on Sunday, would they be shocked by how you live the rest of the week? In other words, if any one of you caught the other person outside of Sunday, would they just be like, oh, Like, would they just be aghast, right? Because this is the picture that's presented every week. Would they be shocked? Because what that would mean then, if they were shocked, 
What that would mean is that worship is a spoken, but not a lived out value for you. So here's a little example. My spoken value is to fit in size 32 jeans. But my lived out value is pasta and Netflix. (laughs) That really hurts that you just laughed at that. Mary lived out and prioritized her highest value, which was to worship Jesus. Well, that's great, Ronnie, but what does it mean to worship then? Does it mean singing? Does it mean, you know, boiling oil, pouring oil over, you know, people's heads? I mean, is that what we're talking, what do you mean when you say worship? Well, when we talk about worship, when we talk about living a life of worship, we're really, we're talking about obedience. We're talking about obedience to God. Romans 12, one through two says, Paul writing, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This was what Mary was doing, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he goes on to say, don't be conformed to the world. So how do you worship God in your life? How do you live this out? How do you prioritize the value of worship? Well, you do it by not being conformed to the world, but by living out the heart change that you've been given by the shape and the contours of the gospel. Remember, Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for wanting to help the poor, does he? Not against helping the poor. That would go against everything that we learn about Jesus in every other place in the gospels. He rebukes them for misplaced priorities. When we prioritize works over worship, the result will be a lack of tenderness towards Jesus. And that's what these brothers were experiencing. It's like in the story of Mary and Martha. We've gone through this before in Luke 10. Remember when Martha gets frustrated because Jesus comes over and she's scrambling around the house, preparing food like a mad woman while Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And Jesus says, Mary, by the way, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Priorities. Because your priorities tell you something about your values. Psalm 50 verse 23 says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The psalmist there, David, is talking about priorities. See, works are not our highest act of obedience. Do you guys know that? Works are not our highest act of obedience. Worship is. You guys remember Samuel, when he was coming down on King Saul for not obeying the voice of the Lord. Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says, Saul has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He's like, dude, think about this. Think through this. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To listen. So one of the ways that we worship is we are thankful. One of the ways that we worship God with our lives is we listen to him. Because good works are not what draw us near to God. Good works that are acceptable to God flow from a heart that draws near to God before all else. Look what happens when that's reversed. 
Because that's what we have a picture of here. Look what happens when that's reversed. We have angry disciples. We have the betrayal of Judas. Works without worship turn a heart toward self-worship, toward self-exaltation, toward self-gratification over self-denial. Why do we sing on Sundays before we open God's word and then we end up fellowshipping with God's people afterwards? Why, why do we open up our services with, with singing? Is it because singing is so gosh darn fun? No, it's because the Holy Spirit tenderizes our hearts and prepares our minds to receive God's word so that when we leave here, we can do good works out of gratefulness rather than guilt. It's a means of grace. When we come before the Lord with these hearts of singing and praise and adoration like Mary. Psalm 51, 16 says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it, the psalmist says. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So that's what we know about what is acceptable to God, what our works need to flow from. And in fact, Jesus, what is, what's going on with him right now? Well, Jesus was preparing to do the ultimate work in order to redeem our worship. That's what he's on the eve of right here. And I think it's important for us to remember that when Jesus says in verse nine that Mary's story would be told in memory of her, so would the disciples' story about how poorly they reacted, right? We just read Mary's story, he was right. We also read the story about the disciples. But the disciples' story doesn't end there, does it? When we get to the book of Acts, we see their lives echoing the life of Mary's, where their works flowed from their worship. And again, we talk about Mary, her story wouldn't be heard so that we could adore Mary, but to give us a model for how to adore our Lord like Mary. Will we receive this rebuke from Jesus that he gave the disciples? Will we receive this rebuke from Jesus about what we prioritize? Because we need to let Jesus's reaction to his disciples be what shapes our actions. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian sitting here, you have the blood-bought privilege of having the gospel shape and reshape your priorities. That's the gift. With the cross, you now have the framework. You have a framework now to stake your life on and to live your life under. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit leading you through the contours of this cross-shaped life where you will find your priorities being Realign. So when I ask you, what are your priorities? What I'm really asking is, where is Jesus in your life? Where is Jesus? Is he at the top of your list? Do the things you do flow from an affectionate and grateful heart for Jesus and his transforming and joy-filled work on the cross? Are you motivated by knowing this? That even though you will sin and stumble you will not be any more or less loved or saved 10 years from now than you are today, even though you will be 10 years more sanctified by God's grace. This is God's unrivaled, 
unchanging grace. This plays out for us as we end in this difficult area in the church of works versus worships. Sometimes, man, we just, church doesn't do a good job of not confusing the two things, right? We can and should worship God by our works. Some of you might be saying, but don't, don't I worship God through my works? You do. But works that don't flow from our worship are unacceptable to God. So we can serve in ministries like the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas. We can drop tithes and offering boxes like the wealthy in the temple. But if those works were never motivated by a worshipful heart, they carry the weight of condemnation. God is so concerned about the obedience of our hearts that he sent Jesus to die so that we could be given new hearts that would serve and obey him from love, like Mary. That's the work of Christ on the cross, that our works would flow from our worship and we would rest in this restored joy. That's why I finished this gig with a smile. Because all the hope is contained in the work that Jesus was two days away from completing, which is our hope of restoration with God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come before you humbly, recognizing that when we read Mark 14 and we see the reaction of these disciples, we know that it's our reaction. And we know the things that we prioritize are out of order than what you've laid before us. So God, give us hearts of thankfulness. Give us minds that will listen to your words. Lord, give us lives and lifestyles that are models of the gospel. Lord, let our, our good works that you prepared for us, let those flow. Let those flow from a changed heart, from a heart that is daily being more conformed in the image of Christ, that is daily being more transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, do that for us as your church in this community. Lord, let us prioritize the things that are acceptable to you. Lord, let us rest in the grace that our works don't get us any closer to you, but it's Christ's work on the cross that brought us near you. Help us to live out that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.